yeah, it's always so my um my podcast covers such a wide berth of subjects that it's 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 been really tricky because it's like I want to appeal to a large group of people, but in those large groups of people are very niche groups of people and so it's like when people are like oh i'm like yeah you'll really love episodes like da 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 but then if you happen to catch episode whatever you might be extremely turned off to it so glad to hear that you enjoyed it <laughs> no i did i mean I, I saw some stuff on the page first some of the the silly spots mm-hmm. which were funny but then i was like i hope it's a serious podcast <laughs> it mean, is I like, I like funny stuff but so yeah, the one you sent me, and then I listened to um, um, Josh Hadquist's one, and you know I know him kind of through Facebook, and we have a lot of mutual friends. So yeah, and that's I, I guess I'd like to I'd like to say that I'm a silly guy that talks about serious things, and I just can't I can't extract <laughs> um, funny or like goofing around from my personality, and that's just how uh, like really. It's really a, a defense mechanism for a lot of trauma and pain, but whatever. It makes for good listening to. Yeah. Well, laughter and tears are close cousins. Absolutely. So <laughs> I also have a very poor habit of not uh, introducing guests, so I will try to rectify that. So if you want to introduce yourself and, and whatever titles you would like to uh, accompany that, I would be honored. Yeah. Um, you know, I wear different hats. Yeah. And uh, these hats have come together in a unique way. I'm uh, Christopher Foley, Chris Foley, bass player from Luxury, uh, but also Father Christopher, uh, you know, to my parishioners, also uh, 15 years an Eastern Orthodox priest. Um, yeah, so you can imagine those are unique hats to, to wear at the same time. Yeah. How, in conversation. So- <laughs> 15 years so how old were you when you uh were ordained oh gosh okay so 34 oh wow so you'd be yeah, i'm 33 so that would be like me suddenly pivoting to become all of a sudden all of a sudden <laughs> um, yeah i turned 49 this year so oh wow uh when's Ooh. your birthday january oh interesting a little yeah. january birthday so you get the yeah the uh the lull in the months to celebrate that's good um so i want to so i just i want to i want to talk about a bunch of things obviously and i want to give you a chance to um talk about the wonderful documentary that's going to be streaming soon um y'all are also playing furnace fest um coming up and i'm assuming that's your when's the last time y'all played live last time we played live in front of other people <laughs> i bet it's been gosh probably 20 years oh maybe. my gosh i think we played cornerstone in 2002 and i think that wow. was probably one of the last times we played so that's quite Remember that's gonna be yeah that's gonna be so quite an occasion too yeah it's a big deal Um, Uh, obviously, you know, we got together to record and we've been, you know, we've been, you know, kind of took about a 12 or 13 year break, I guess. And when we recorded trophies in 2014, 2015, that was the first time we had played together in a room for quite some time. Yeah. Um, So I want, and I'm trying to figure out how to, how to layer this. Cause also the, the bulk of, of what I want to talk about is, and this is where um, Josh kind of clued me in because he had told me um, we were kind of going through his spiritual journey, faith journey, whatever you want to call it, and how he is now, uh, he goes to Catholic Mass. And I actually have a lot of friends that have bailed out of, um, I guess we'll just call it like Western Evangelical, and they've gone back to... um, either Episcopalian or Catholicism. I don't think I know, well, I know you now and uh, uh, that have gone to Eastern Orthodoxy, but I just found that so fascinating. And I've, I've even noticed, I guess it's kind of a, a natural pendulum swing sort of thing, but I've noticed that kind of 
and it could be because I've been reading about people having similar experiences, but even, mm-hmm. you know, I, at first I was super, um, into the cool people church where it was like, oh, okay, cool. You know, like the Mars Hill. Um, and, right. I, and I think that's what I needed at that time. And I was like, okay, this is, it's really informal. This isn't my dad's church sort of thing. I, uh, right. I grew up Southern Presbyterian um, in South Carolina. Um, so, you know, just you're pretty much standard uh, Sunday school, vacation Bible school, Wednesday night church, um, right. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but having had my fill of that and feeling sort of empty, it's like I, I've noticed like the most recent example was our Christmas Eve service. I found myself really wanting to sit and enjoy the um not the pageantry what's the word the um the ceremony what is the word i'm trying to think yeah um just the reverent ceremony of the thing yeah yeah, the lighting the candles and it it felt respectful or something about it just really made me feel like this feels good um right absolutely yeah and so I would love to hear about how you moved from, we can talk about what exactly your previous faiths were, what mm-hmm. kind of drew you to mm-hmm. orthodoxy, and then also we'll try to jam as much of this as possible because this is just a great subject. I'm just being a man, and you are a man, um, and a musician and all these other things, what is it like being an Orthodox priest? And like, you know, cause it, in my head it's, it's uh, close to like monasticism or it's like, you have, you know, are you allowed to laugh? Can you drink Pepsi? You know, um, I mean, I'm kidding, but. No, um, I learned to drink. I learned to drink when I became Orthodox. There you go. It's definitely not a, a, a Puritan uh, yeah. influence. Uh, are you familiar with yeah. Brennan Manning? Yeah. 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 That's, that's, um, cause I'm also a recovered alcoholic. So I really latched on to him. Um, and his, his sort of same thing too, where he, I guess, you know, we have an incorrect tendency to place, um, assuming that because you are this ordained priest, then therefore like you don't sin, you don't struggle, you, you know, this, that, or the other. And so yeah. that's why I'm always curious to yeah, peek the behind opposite. the veil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you kind of asked a series of questions there. Um, yeah, we can start I, with, I guess, yeah, just kind of some background. Sure. You know, I, I was raised and, you know, a strong Christian evangelical home, um, and I always emphasize evangelical rather than, you know, mainline Protestant, because it was really, you know, no creed, but Christ, you know, I'm not a Baptist, I'm a Christian, you know, kind of okay. uh, upbringing, um, you know, so we went to a number of different churches growing up, but we never really considered ourselves, you know, I guess it was kind of non-denominational, but like I grew up mostly in Dr. Charles Stanley's church in Atlanta, Andy Stanley was my youth pastor growing up. And, no way. Uh, so that was kind of my lineage, you know, and, uh, you know, certainly within evangelicalism, very much a product of that time growing up in the 80s, 70s, 80s, you know, I graduated high school in 90s. So, you know, youth group culture, all of that was definitely part of my upbringing, going on mission trips, you know, the whole deal. Um but just found myself in my college years, I was studying missiology. I didn't really know what, what I was going to What is that? Miss, yeah, it's, you know, studying missions. I wanted to become a, oh, okay. you know, a missionary so you can go to school and get a degree in cross-cultural studies and missiology. Okay. And you study, you know, the theology of missions, you study the history, you study cultural anthropology. And, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I, I didn't really... You know, I was from the punk scene in Atlanta growing up and, you know, I just, um, I never saw myself in kind of a traditional ministry setting, but, you know, I thought, oh, maybe I'll go with YWAM to Amsterdam and work with the street punks and drug dealers, Yeah. you know, do something like that. So, you know, I was kind of drawn to kind of a non-traditional 
ministries, but I, I just, I found myself just really becoming disillusioned with what I call kind of the evangelical experiment, um, where it just seemed like, and, you know, I have the utmost respect for, you know, evangelicalism and, and where I came from and, and all of that. But, you know, for me, I, I felt like I was longing for, I don't know, like a, a filet mignon, but I was in a world of potato chips and crackers or something, you know, like I, I wanted something more. I wasn't quite sure what I was looking for, but I was, I started going to a vineyard church in college, uh, kind of played in the worship team. I, I listened to your one podcast with the other worship leader yeah, and I could just really relate to, you know, some of that, but that's been, you know, over gosh, 25 years ago now, you know, when I was in that world. Yeah. It's a, it's a different beast these days. Yeah. So I, I guess I was just, you know, I wanted something to, to feed my soul. And, and my problem wasn't so much with, with God or Christ. It was just kind of the church culture around me. I just felt like I, I didn't fit in. Like I was looking around and everybody else was just having this ecstatic experience. And I was just like, I mean, I don't, I don't feel it and I don't want to feel it. I want it more than just emotions. And I just, you know, I wanted this experience of God where, you know, he was worshiped with reverence and awe. this, this like Moses in front of the burning bush, you know, Isaiah, you know, and that vision of the the angel taking the charcoal off the, um, the fire, you know, just kind of this, I wanted this experience of God where he was worshiped. And he was the focus, not on some new hip thing yeah. that was changing every week and every, you know, it just seems like evangelicalism was just taking it, it's, it's, you know, touch point from, from the culture. And, you know, I loved, you know, punk rock. I loved, you know, music, I, you know, but doing that within the church like within like i don't know the sunday morning worship i I, it just i don't know there's like this dissonance that was going on so i didn't know what i was necessarily looking for um i was part of a small group bible study we started studying the early church fathers uh understanding the history of the church understanding liturgical the liturgical year um started studying some western liturgical traditions and then found this rich eastern christian uh worship and there was a group of about 40 of us that made that journey together that is Uh, rare yeah through a group called the evangelical orthodox church basically they were a group of evangelicals from the early 70s who were on a similar journey some of them had worked with Campus Crusade for years and years, and in their research and study, they had found the beauty of ancient Eastern Christianity, and basically they were a Protestant group just borrowing very heavily from which, Orthodox theology and worship. Um, which seems- So we became part of that group for a few years, but then realized you know, we needed to be joined to the whole. If we were going to embrace, you know, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, it's kind of an oxymoron to be a, like an independent Orthodox church. Like you really have to be joined, you know, to the whole. And then to realize, you know, the Orthodox church, it's, it's the second largest body in Christendom. But in the West, you know, we don't hear about it. We think there's Catholics and Protestants. I thought in my ignorance, I thought Orthodox equaled Catholic. I thought it was just, and then I was like, because when they're in the documentary, they're saying they were Orthodox. I was like, well, what Orthodox are they talking about? I didn't realize that it was a, I mean, that's, that's some extreme ignorance. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, if you go to Eastern Europe or, you know, the Middle East, Northern Africa, I mean, I would say the majority, you know, of the Christians in those regions are historically, you know, Orthodox Christians, you know, the East and the West split in 1054, uh, there was just a over theology, the the role of of the Pope and in the life of the church, and you know. So they make a long story short. Catholic basically, and Orthodox. That was the split. Right, right, okay. right. So in the East, that continued to be, you know, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Where in the West, that's what became known as the Roman Catholic Church, and then you have the Protestant Reformation, 
in the West. So in the East, you never had a Middle Ages. You never had kind of the same abuses that that kind of crept into the Latin church that then the Reformation was reacting against. That's you know? super interesting. When, when you say... Um, when you say the early church fathers are these, so the other thing that um, seems to be in vogue in like Christian culture circles right now are like um, um, Richard Rohr, Rob Bell, and um, even like comedians like Pete Holmes are talking about like the early desert fathers. Are these yeah, one and the same? Fathers. Well, kind of. I mean, the the early church fathers would even kind of go before that. So these would be disciples of the disciples, basically. Okay. You know, St. Ignatius of Antioch, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, um, St. Justin Martyr, you know, these were people who, you know, were just once removed from the apostles and then removed from Christ. So they left writings behind, you know, that weren't canonical scripture in the sense they weren't apostles, but they were, you know, the church never rejected them either. These weren't the spurious ones that you hear about like gospel of Thomas and, you know, things like that. These, right. these are legitimate writings. So kind of studying them to how did they understand worship? How did they understand church order? How did they understand, you know, theology? Um, so rather than reading somebody, you know, like a Richard Rohr or somebody like that, who's, you know, who's, who's great and fine, but, you know, we wanted to read, you know, some people who were closer to the apostles. Well, what did they have to say? Yeah. Um, and then the desert fathers, that they would have been kind of third, fourth century. And those were kind of the first monastics. Um, so do you, and this is, and I apologize, because this is going to bring forth just a bunch of questions. Um, so with, th so tracing it back to the source like that, do you think there is something to, because it's, and I like how you've traced this historically. So do you think like essentially kind of what we're getting at is like one or not one, but a group of people at a certain time essentially got it right. And it's been right as it were. And it kind of, you know, then you'll have, you know, like Martin Luther, um, CS Lewis, all these revolutionaries through uh, history past then that created the splinters. I guess it's one of those, how do we, and we don't know, but like, how do you know that's the, you know, how do we know we landed on the right one? Is it a natural progression? Is that what's supposed to happen? Or is this kind of a personal yeah, choice I, thing? Do you understand what? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess what, what drew me to it is, you know, when, in, when I was in my undergraduate Bible college, so we they had a Bible and theology department and they probably had 12 different professors, all of whom, you know, had their PhDs, you know, MTHs, all of that, you know, saying the Bible's the inerrant word of God, da, 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 da. But then you had 12 different interpretations there. And so it's like, okay, well, was there a time in the history of the church where there was, you know, one common understanding of the one gospel, an, a correct understanding of the interpretation of these texts? And, you know, where is that? I want to find that and I want to fall back into the arms of the church and be shaped and formed by her rather than me trying to make the church in my own image, which is like, you know, postmodern, you know, yeah. 21st century, you know, I mean, we live in this time, but, um, you know, I guess that's what drew me back towards the history of the church. It's like, okay, well, maybe I've got it wrong. <laughs> And maybe I, it's time for me to be shaped and formed by the church rather than God's doing a new thing. And let's, you know, that, cause it is, it is, it is very easy to get swept up in the, in the emotion and the sensationalism. And so, but before, and if you can hearken back to that time, one thing that I'm always really interested in is, is how people interact with God. So how, in your 20s, when were you saved? Like kind of sort of you've always been saved sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the, you know, I, I prayed some kind of sinner's prayer in that Yeah. <laughs> as a young man, but I mean, as a young child, but I mean, I've essentially just always. Okay, believed. so in your 20s around this time when you're having these questions, on like, I guess, a practical level, 
what was your relationship like, like God, like? Huh. <laughs> it's a, I yeah. know, it's easy question. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, it's funny to look back on that time because the words that I'll use right now are feeling words. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's like, what, yeah. When I think about it now, like, I don't, I don't speak in like kind of these feeling words, but I can remember being 20 and I guess, you know, feeling like I had, you know, a relationship with God. I mean, I, I it mattered to me. It was important to me. Um, you know, I wanted to, you know, kind of serve God in some way. I mean, it was very much, you know, important part of my life. And I wanted to have that experience of him and that intimacy with him. Um, but then that was part of, then I'd be in a room with a bunch of other Christians and I just, whatever they were feeling was kind of different than. Do you, do you think they were, I don't want to say lying, but do you think they no, were I, deceived I, I, or cause I had, well, I, I, I kind of got caught up in lots of trusted people that I looked at their lives and they said that they had this relationship and all that and that, then it comes out that they've been doing this, that, and the other behind right. closed doors and, or just coming out. And especially with, you know, the early tooth and nail Christian band scene you have, you know, starting with like David Bazan, people slowly right. coming out and being like, I never believed this. Don't really believe right. it. Right. right. And so it has me retro. I, I guess it has cre like given me a, distrust i guess um yeah. and then at the same time i remember being sold out at those times and feeling so good and a huge part of me wishes i could put that genie back in the bottle it's like yeah, i'm still trying to arrive somewhere yeah like, well and we can't go back i no. mean i think i think that's a childlike faith and so yeah. when somebody yeah. like david bazan and others and you know i I respect people and, and where their journey takes them. And, you know, I don't want to be too critical of that, but, you know, there's kind of like this new, like the deconstructionist thing. And, um, you know, we, we need to be able to ask hard questions and we need to, you know, confront our struggle and our doubt because that leads to deeper faith. You know, we can't just, you know, be cheerleader, rah, 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 because I mean, that is a, that's, that's milk. That's, you know, to go deeper means to wrestle with your faith. It means to, um, you know, kind of make it our own. And sometimes we have to go through incredible suffering and difficulty and, you know, the dark night of the soul, the Hades, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about the gates of hell being locked from the inside, you know, having that experience of just, yeah, I'm struggling. You know, God, where are you? Um, it's where it's where I've been sitting for a minute. I feel like, and it's yeah. It's, and my experience, you know, I'll use kind of me and I statements. I mean, my experience of evangelicalism is that it it kind of keeps you in a spiritual adolescence, or it can, it can. And so I was longing and looking. I wanted a faith. That, that was deeper and had depth and it was a deep well and it could handle the struggles and the questions and the darkness and the inconsistencies within my own heart, you know, not to do this image management thing. We're like, let's all pretend we all have it together and we're all gonna get together and we're just gonna perpetuate this kind of non-reality. Yeah. And it's like, well, I, I don't wanna do that. Um, and so, you know, for me, as I came in contact with orthodoxy and the writings of some of the, you know, the Eastern fathers and mothers of the church and the monastic tradition, I mean, it is a deep well. It's people that have bled and have been to hell and found God there. Um, it's not and then, a you know, Starbucks cup persecution we have over here. I know, I know it, it is. I mean, and to even think even in the, in Russia, I mean, during, you know, the communist era, you know, 
I think more Christians died during that hundred years than all of the centuries previous added together. And these were Christians. Many of these were Christians who were killed and tortured and imprisoned for their faith. Is there reading? Uh, I would like, I didn't even really know that. That's something I'd like to. Yeah. I mean, Russia, I mean, a lot of the Eastern European countries, I mean, Russia had been Christian for a thousand years. In fact, the story I always love to tell is in the early nineties, I went on some mission trips to Russia you know, because all the, the Western groups wanted to run in there. Sure. <laughs> when our curtain open because we got to save these godless atheists. But I remember sitting there and we were at a bus stop with our translator and across the street was this onion dome, you know, this Orthodox church. And I had no idea what the Orthodox church was at that time. I remember asking my translator, you know, what is that over there? I, I keep seeing these all around Russia and they have crosses on them. And she's like, oh, well, that's, that's our Russian Orthodox Church. You know, we've been Christian for a thousand years. And then it's kind of like, but I just got here. So uh, how is that possible? Wait a second. You know, it's so like the synapses like started yeah. misfiring and like, uh, okay, I guess my job is done here. Like I didn't have mm-hmm. a context for that until a few years later when I started kind of studying the history of the church and it's like, whoa, wow. You know, Christianity is so much bigger than this little blip on the screen of you know north american white bread evangelicalism <laughs> that i was raised in and I, it's much bigger if that if that's all you're exposed to you think that it's monolithic yeah and but I, it's not it's not at all <laughs> and i i feel like we are reaping the um the consequences of putting all of our collective eggs in that basket with people just leaving the church in droves and right. it's like for for good reason though it's it's right. like because yeah this it's i, yeah, probably I for don't good. want a hollow yeah. thing like well no. like have you seen strange negotiations i did i did um and you know i love dave and i mean he's my favorite songwriter and i love his music i love how sincere and real and i mean that that documentary in a sense kind of made me weep on multiple levels me too i could really relate to what he was struggling with but the part that i struggled with the most it's like you know the christianity that you're rejecting and struggling with the god that you're struggling with is a god that i don't believe in either right um and so i guess you know i have a heart for many of our brothers and sisters who have just struggled and left the church understandably so but it's like i guess for me i i felt like maybe i was starting on my way out of the church and i'm just so glad that i found orthodoxy because i felt like this is what i've really been looking for my whole life (laughs) and this is what I've always believed, but I never had the words for it. It just resonated on a deeper level. And it's hard. It's a very hard path because it's, you know, you talk about recovery. I mean, I kind of feel like in a sense, Orthodox, the Orthodox spiritual path is kind of a life of, of recovery. Um, Yeah. That's because that's kind of what what I was going to ask. What are some of the, uh, I guess, theological and, um, life points that separate orthodoxy from the rest? Well, I would say probably the first thing that really resonated with me is that for us, uh, salvation and all of the discussion about, about sin, about the fall, about what Christ accomplished, the model is always ER language uh, rather than a courtroom language. Okay. So Christ is the physician. Okay. He is oh, the ER. Got you. Emergency. ER. Yeah. Okay. Like the hospital, hospital gotcha. language. You know, so our sin is our, is our sickness. Like we, we, we cease to be what we were really created to be in this fully in this image and likeness. So when we get caught in, in our sin and our darkness, we, in a sense, we kind of like, we cease to, exist it's like we're it's like ontological suicide or something and so even like what i mentioned earlier about c.s lewis talking about the gates of hell being locked from the inside so there's this sense that 
you know, all has been offered and won because of Christ, but there are times where I don't really want it, if I'm honest. Yeah. And so salvation then is not a, a dot on a linear, linear time. Salvation is something that is ongoing. So we would say kind of, I was saved 2000 years ago. I am being saved. And then Lord willing, I'll wake up tomorrow and, and continue to participate in that. So Christ is the physician and healer. I am the one that needs surgery. And Christ is the one who wants to, it's like we're Humpty Dumpty and we've fallen off the wall and we're in a thousand pieces and we are broken. And Christ wants to come alongside and put these pieces back together because the word for salvation in Greek, so-so, literally means to be made whole. You know, it's to, in a sense to be kind of a complete, you know, human being to be put back together. So our true identity is our life in Christ. That is our true self. So our sin is not our identity. Christ is our identity. And so it's not a courtroom. It's not the judge pointing his finger at us. Like the Orthodox don't believe in kind of the substitutionary atonement well, stuff that's unique. Well, what would they say? Well, I guess you kind of just said it. Or yeah, yeah that's that, I mean, was, that like was my we, question about hell. We participate. And, yeah. You know, our salvation is like you know, substitutionary atonement would be. I do know, nothing. Yeah. Yeah, the Father's pointing his finger at you. He can't look at you. Christ comes and takes it upon Himself, and so now God can look at us through His Son, through the blood-stained glasses, and we are imputed righteousness. Whereas the Orthodox understanding is we participate in this salvation. We become more holy by participating in Christ. It's not imputed to us. It, it's like an orthopraxy. It's a, it's a way of living. We, okay. we, we put on Christ and the more we put on Christ, the more we become really who we truly are living in this image and likeness of God. Um, so what was in the fall, communion was broken, but we broke the communion. We turned away. So our journey back is like the journey of the prodigal son from the pig pen, coming back to the house of the father, coming to himself. Uh, we run back into the arms of the father who's just kind of scanning the horizon, waiting for us to return. So if salvation was up to God, we'd have nothing to fear. The problem is with us. Does that, uh, that, and that's uh, my salvation anxiety just went through the roof because it's like, so is that, does that mean it is something that can be lost? And well, I guess ultimately, what do y'all believe is the fate of the lost? Yeah. Well, I guess what we would say is um, it can be lost to the degree that we don't want it. <laughs> I got you. You know, there's not going to be any surprises <laughs> um, in a sense like, the end, if we can even call it the end, you know, we would say it's just a participation in what we've been choosing all along. So we would speak of heaven and hell, not as uh, heaven is up and hell is down. We don't believe in like a two-story universe <laughs> like that. I mean, really in the West, even that was post Dante. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, there's the sense of a single tiered universe where um, this might get a little theological, but we Go would say it. that, you know, from the throne of God is a river of fire, which is the fire of his love flowing out to us, to those of us who have loved that fire of God's love. And we've participated in that. And, you know, that, that fire is his love, <laughs> you know, to be in his presence for eternity. You know, we experience a foretaste of that here and now. But likewise, if we can't stand that fire of his love to be in his presence, to be in the presence of such love, but to hate it, 
as a fire and a torture worse than any hellfire is what uh, St. Isaac the Syrian says. He is, a, I think, a fifth century saint. That there's this sense of it's all one experience. That's and super interesting. Yeah, so we experience the fire of his love, you know, either as, you know, this communion or we experience it as this regret. And, and St. Isaac says, it's just like when we're around somebody that we can't stand and they they love us. That's oh like my gosh, yes. Torture to be around somebody yeah. like because we're just like, oh gosh, or like a like a mangy dog that just wants you to pet it and it's just rubbing. Right, on right. And so it's this idea that you know it's not God condemning anyone to to hell or whatever. You know, it is. It's it's all grace and gift. You know, it's you know, He is everywhere present and filling all things. The problem is, is you know, with us, how do we experience that that love of God? And that depends on us. Um, and so I always think of like the story from the gospel of the, uh, the man by the pool, you know, who had been laying there for like mm -hmm. 38 years and woe is me. I don't have anybody to put me in the water and Christ comes up to him and he doesn't heal him right away. He asks him a very important question. <laughs> he says, do you want to be made well? You know, and you kind of, kind of imagine this guy going, well, yeah. what do you think? I'm just sitting here all day for my, he doesn't say that he, he responds and then Christ says, well, then rise, take up your mat and walk. Well, somebody who's a paralytic can't rise and take up his mat and walk. But I think what Christ was asking him is like, well, do you really want it? Yeah. Do you really want to be healed? Because he had probably developed a whole, Oh yeah. Uh, you know, woe is me. People are taking care of me. In now I have to work. Recovery now language. It's responsibility. It's, for my yeah. It's, we say uh, victims don't get sober. Or victims right. don't get well. And it's like, yeah, right. there's, and especially, I think that's what drives me crazy about, uh, I guess we can call it internet culture lately, is people finding and latching on to an identity that guarantees them pity. And that is how, or, and I see that as such a sickness where it's just like. It is, it is, yeah. Well, and I think mature faith, means getting past the victim syndrome sure you know because that can become such a strong identity and we think of christ i mean he was certainly a victim but he chose not to be victimized by it sure and you know and so i think that's where orthodox spirituality then i, I you know i think it's similar from what i've read and understood of the kind of the 12-step movement all of that I, I think why that works so well that's where it came from <laughs> Is because that's where it came from. Yeah, and I, it I think absolutely the, is. kind of the ancient, like the desert fathers and, and such. I mean, they were very aware of the darkness that lies in the heart of man. Um, and it's so it, in a sense, we're kind of like sin, sin addicts, if you will. Yeah. And it's a lifetime of recovery, of, of being honest, admitting our powerlessness. And like putting it out there. What is it? I think the third step is that the one you take a full inventory. Uh, step four. Yeah. Oh, step four and four. five is where you write it down. Then yeah, you tell so it. Like, to... you know, yeah. We practice, you know, confession. Um, and so this is a, a way I think for people to, you know, have accountability and come one is confessing before Christ, certainly, but in the presence of a priest, not through a priest, you know, the prayers are very specific. I stand next to the person. They are facing an icon of Christ. And I say, I am just here as a fellow sojourner, fellow sinner. Christ is here. And again, the ER, the hospital language. I think of the priest as kind of the triage nurse that's bringing the penitent before Christ. But there's something about saying it out loud yes. in a safe place where, you know, like a priest cannot break the seal of confession or he will be defrocked. Yeah. Um, it's a safe place. One is confessing to Christ. And it just, I think it helps people. It helps me. I go to confession. It helps me take ownership of it. Um, left to my own devices, I wouldn't probably naturally do that. But the church is saying and encouraging us to go a number of times a year, um, you know, That's just wanting to be healed, being honest about it.
and so when I and this is what I've come up some of these are rhetorical and it's like I know the answers but I'm, I'm I always <laughs> just love crowdsourcing things to hear current right. experiences so when you when I hear you say things like Christ is the great physician he wants to put us back together he wants us to be whole and I hear all these things it's like so how do I how do we do that how do, then why don't I feel what's not working then what am I doing wrong why can't I seem to get fixed why does why does he seem so distant what it's and this is where I guess for me it would help to have a framework of stuff because you know I did go through a little deconstruction and I'm really trying to reconstruct but it's and I've you know speaking to you and I've spoke to so many people that have so many different point of views that it's like I'm I'm back to basics like yeah, okay but how do I just be loving and Christ like and feel better again like so what do I do right yeah I mean you know, I, I can only speak out of my Orthodox lived experience. Um, now for, I guess I've been Orthodox over probably 20 years now, but, um, you know, so for me, you know, my life in Christ is lived out in the context of, you know, a disciplined Orthodox spiritual life that, you know, we practice, you know, prayers and fasting, almsgiving we have the liturgical year we're going through a liturgical cycle where we're constantly brought through these cycles we're going through great lent right now which is a time of you know sobriety a time of you know more services we, we try to do more spiritual reading more reflection on you know where have i missed the mark you know who do i need to make amends to what 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 are the things in my life that still, you know, need work. And there's this sense of it's a lifelong journey and it doesn't always feel good. I mean, it, I think in some ways it's, you know, it's kind of like changing the expectation is that mm. maybe you're never going to feel. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, it, like, it, 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 you hit and the that's nail on the head. Faith. Yeah. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head when you, when you talked about milk and adolescence and it, cause it, when I got sober this last time, I got, I had very, very visceral and powerful spiritual experiences. I think God knew that I knew that at that time. Mm -hmm. I find my tendency is to want God to be like a shot of liquor where like it's this feeling and it feels good and I know it, but it's like, that's not a sustainable Yeah, thing. well, religion can be. A powerful drug. I mean, is that not the name of your your podcast? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah and absolutely. you know, I when I read some of the the lives of the saints, that might be something I would encourage you to do is maybe pick up some of these biographies of lives of the saints. So there's the saint named Saint Silouan of Mount Athos. So he he's fairly recent. I think he died in the middle 1900s. So I mean, he's 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 fairly recent, but uh, he he does this. In his autobiography, actually, it was a biography written by his kind of spiritual son, but it was taken from a lot of conversations he had with St. Silouan. And he talks about, you know, when he first kind of blossomed in his spiritual life as a young 20-something, he was just excited about his faith. He wanted to go to the monastery and like God gave him these wonderful experiences early on in his monastic journey in fact everybody kind of looked at him like wow yeah you know, he seems to be like far ahead and then just as soon as he had these experiences all of a sudden they just disappeared for like 20 years <laughs> and like he didn't feel anything in his prayers he didn't have i mean he was so overwhelmed by his own just kind of struggle and just with the darkness of all of that, um, you know, he kind of struggled with like, you know, maybe this isn't, isn't for me. And, uh, but he writes about it. And then <laughs> if you look at an icon of St. Silouan, a lot of the, in the icons of saints, mm -hmm. they're holding a scroll. And usually on the scroll is kind of like the thing they're most known for. So in his scroll, and this is something the Lord told him in a vision at one point, he, he told him, I think might have even been a dream. 
keep your mind in hell and despair not. What? <laughs> keep your mind in hell and despair and not. Despair not. <laughs> Whoa. That's and, uh, uh, and then, you know, you kind of read it in the context of his story and it kind of, it, it unpacks sense. it a little more. It's not just like, oh, now we all need to be just like depressed all the time. But, you know, I think what he learned through that is like mature faith is, you know, what happens when all of the consolation is taken away from us and we don't have these ecstatic experiences. We don't feel God. We don't, you know, like true, that's where true faith begins. Yeah. <laughs> because then you're not doing it for any goosebump you're getting in return. You know, we, we mm, treat God yeah. like he's the genie in the sky. And we, if we rub him the right way, then we're going to get what we want. And we make this contract with him. And then when we don't get it, we get pissed off at him. And like, we blame everything on him. Whereas mature faith is, no, true faith starts when, you know, you're in hell and you're struggling and you're, you know, you're on your bed of illness or, you know, you've got some awful news or you're struggling, you know, I mean, that's where we, yeah, no, I, we yeah. learn and, uh, it, it's not, it doesn't preach well in a North American <laughs> prosperity, you know, but it's what I'm, it's, it, I recognize it as a truth though, you know, I recognize that as a truth. So yeah. how, um, I want to, um, respect your time here, but a little bit. So what would you say is the best parts of being, uh, a priest and what are the most difficult parts well the best parts um you know you just saw the movie so i, I kind of talk about in the movie it, probably the most profound moments for me as a priest is is standing at that altar you know because our understanding of our worship is that we are participating in the one liturgy, the one worship that is taking place around the throne of God. And so our altar area is supposed to kind of represent heaven. And so we are there mystically present with all of the saints, with the angels around the throne of God. And so every once in a while, kind of that veil gets pulled just a little bit. Mm. And I get this tiny, tiny little thimble full uh kind of vision of like what is happening here oh, and just man. the joy of just being in that moment because liturgy I, I always think of it like a river it just carries you like so i can have a bad day i can wake up on a sunday morning and be just i don't know kind of depressed or tired or you know whatever stressed and then I just show up and we do what's in the book and we sing and we offer up the liturgy. It's not based on like whether I'm feeling it today or yeah. do I have some inspired, you know, I'm just, <laughs> and, and I'm carried. Um, so, you know, I would say that's a profound yeah. moment of just kind of standing at that place where everything kind of, I don't know, for a moment just kind of makes sense. It doesn't mean yes. everything difficulties are taken away it doesn't mean you know i'm still not tired and stressed and whatever no i i know what you're speaking about though yeah. what's the orthodoxy tradition or opinion on like the i guess i'll call it the supernatural or spiritual the spiritual realm spirituality yeah, that, that I mean, sort of we, thing you know we certainly you know there's stories of of saints and visions and you know we have icons that miraculously weep myrrh you know, and people are anointed from the oil that, that weeps from. Have you seen something like that? And they're healed. Yeah, I've seen, That's I've awesome. seen, them. Um, you know, so we certainly, you know, are not opposed to seeing the supernatural, but at the same time, we're very sober about it. And we, mm. we like for instance, like in a church, if, if one of our icons started weeping myrrh, like, you immediately take it off the wall, you bring it into the altar, you call your bishop, and the bishop comes and like kind of tests it. Oh wow. Like, 
and I've even heard, you know, they'll do like an exorcism over it or something to just kind of verify that this is not some like fabricated thing. Sure. Because, you know, we don't want to be snake oil salespeople. Yes. <laughs> the holy things. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of warnings against seeking that stuff out. So yeah. if it comes, it comes and we receive it as grace and gift. And then we, we, we move on. I like that. It's not because we're special <laughs> or anything. Um, and then the second thing I would say about the great things about being a priest, I would say kind of standing in that sacred space, you know, with people, like when they're making confession and they're just pouring out their hearts and, you know, they're just, you know, they're undone. You know, it's like being laid open on a like surgery and to be able to somehow like be a witness to that and to be like kind of pointing them towards Christ and, you know, to be kind of reminding them of the, the healing that Christ is offering in this place. And I mean, it's just such a sacred space. Like I, I'm always after confession, <laughs> I'm just blown away. Sometimes I, I want to tell them, gosh, you know, would you hear my confession? I mean, you are taking this so much more <laughs> seriously than me. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're the Holy one. Here. Yeah. You know, um, and then, so the flip side of that, I would say the difficulty is just, I, I mean, I think it's in any pastoral ministry or helping profession, it's just dealing with people, difficult yep. people, yep. difficult situations, having to, you know, conflict and I'm a substance uh, abuse counselor. So yes. Oh yeah. Okay. So yeah. So yep. it's the same. Compassion and fatigue. That, yeah. And knowing your own boundaries and when to, you know you know when to help people when not to help people when yep. helping people is not helping them and, yep um and it, it there has to be this constant self-awareness well is this me is this them you know it, it's just that's hard it and is they don't teach you that in seminary it's <laughs> a lot of and it's one of those things where like uh in 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 my case um accountability and peer fellowship is extremely important right. because I will totally not see something that is plainly obvious and they need to come to me and be like, Hey man, you are really, you're really out of line here. And it's right. like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Same with us. We have kind of peer to peer, mm -hmm. you know, just priest talking to one another and, you know, struggling together and, yeah. uh, you know, and obviously the last year with COVID, I mean, that's kind of added this whole other. Yeah layer and difficulty and and all of that so it, it, it's been yeah it's the hardest thing i certainly have ever done um, yeah um, but it's also the most rewarding and you know i can't imagine doing anything else That's, <laughs> even yeah. though there are days where i'm like all right I'm done. Yeah. That's, that's so funny. Yeah. I really, that's so, yeah. And then the very next day, like, oh yeah, that's why I do this. You know, just one yeah. little moment. Well, you know, you will do and uh, man, thank you so much for the conversation, but yeah. so tell us about the documentary, your band and, um, and the furnace fest. Yeah. Well, um, you know, certainly since, you know, three of us became Orthodox priests in the band. That was the other thing. Um, yeah. You know, I guess that's an interesting story. I mean, I'm so close to it. It doesn't, I'm surprised when other people are interested in that story because it's just, that's just my life. But, you know, we, we started playing together in the early nineties and, you know, got signed to tooth and nail and, you know, did the whole cornerstone touring, all of that you know, we started having kids and all of us were married and, you know, life took us different ways. And that was around the time I was, you know, becoming Orthodox. And so, you know, eventually I went off to seminary, but we, we continued to record off and on, but really I thought I'd left that world behind kind of going off to seminary, not because it's like bad, it's just, you know, okay, <laughs> we're doing something different now. Yeah. So then when our singer, Father David or Lee, uh, contacted us <laughs> 2014 about, you know, I've written some new songs. You guys want to get together and record. And we're like, 
Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds fun. Uh, so we did a Kickstarter uh, and raised money. There was enough old luxury fans around that we were able to record trophies. Around the same time, Matt Hinton, who was the filmmaker, you know, he'd been around for years. He was an old fan from back in the day, um, played in bands that we played with a lot. And then he eventually became a member of, of luxury. Well, he's a filmmaker and he's done a few other documentaries. So when we were recording trophies, he kept having this camera guy there doing stuff We're like, Matt, what's going on? He's like, well, I just, I think this would be an awesome story. I, I just think, you know, the, you know, the accident that you, that we were in, the fact that three of you became Orthodox priests, the fact that we're getting back together to record this album. So we we're just kind of like, okay, whatever, you know, but he kept doing it. He kept getting more footage. He did interviews. He also did a Kickstarter for that and raised over a hundred thousand dollars working on this thing. And uh, he finally finished it. And I mean, it just, and it, it's great. It's, it's I mean, very I, good. I wept when I when I saw the final, you know. Yeah. Project. Um, I, I, it's very emotional, and I definitely thought it was going to be something, and then it very quickly took a sharp left, and I was like, "Oh man, this is yeah, this it's, is it's pretty you know. intense." And it's been really well received. And this is the weird thing is, is that you know now that we're just I don't know we're all grown up, and you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm a priest. That's what I do. And I have four kids. I'm married. And two, you know, we would have um, killed for this kind of publicity back in the day. But now that we don't, like the band can, in a sense, kind of come or go. We're, we're it's not like our we're going to be rock stars, man. Yeah, you know, we're like so over that. But you know, we're getting interviewed on NPR. We're you know getting all of this coverage. It won awards at film festivals and. I don't Life know. It's crazy. Just, it's, it's crazy because, you know, I think, you know, becoming a priest, it was kind of like, I think I hadn't realized it, but I had kind of created this kind of a dualism or something like this was my band life. And yes, I'm a priest now. And, but it was still like within me. And I think doing this album and this movie coming out, it has just helped to I don't know, kind of reintegrate yeah. life and that, you know, like you were saying at the beginning, like, oh, you know, a priest is somebody who's supposed to be all like, oh, holy and oh, God bless you, you know, and all this. And I mean, certainly we 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 strive for holiness, but like, it, we're just it's don't mean we can't people. shred some licks every now and That's then. That's right, too. man. Time to get up the base, man. <laughs> um, so I think it's been helpful and kind of healing for me. I think just to kind of reconnect all of this these disparate parts of my life together into one and that, you know, God uses all of us and our experiences and our backgrounds. And, you know, we're just all unique and different. Yeah. And so yeah. the fact that I'm on this podcast talking about my love of the church and my love of, you know, playing music. And like, to me, that's just how cool is that? It's really yeah. cool. It's <laughs> I, I've always said the, the, you know, the type of people that just like, I'm a football guy or whatever. They just do. They're just one thing. I, I've n I've never understood that life is life is a broad highway. Um, right, so, right. Uh, and I don't think we said the title and, and where people will be able yeah. to uh, stream it. Yeah. It's called uh, parallel love story of a band called luxury. And just this week, uh, a press release, it is being released on May 18th uh, to streaming platforms, to Amazon, iTunes, um, and then it can be purchased, it can be rented, uh, there'll be a DVD in production. Um, yeah, so it'll be available. And then, you know, with Furnace Fest, we were scheduled to play last September. And then obviously with COVID and everything. So that's been rescheduled. So we kind of struggled with that. You know, this is our, you know, how, how do you be a priest and like play a show, you know, and have it be like, I don't know, kind of like not about, hey, cool, look at me up here. And I, I you know, so it, it'll be. Is that inherently wrong, though? For a No, I, I don't yeah, think it is. I, I think just kind of being there in the middle of all of it. I'm, like, I am I am excited to, to bear witness to it. That is, yeah. uh, <laughs> that is 
That is really cool. That is like really, really cool. Yeah, so we figured Furnace Fest would just be a great, you know, they asked us to play and, you know, some of the bands, I mean, I like a lot of the harder stuff, but I'm kind of unique in the band that way. Um, you know, so I don't know, we're not like Screamo and stuff like all of these other bands, but um, it just seemed like a good place to be able to just play and get kind of most of our, I don't know, kind of fans there kind of in one place. Yeah. We know a lot of the other, or some of the other bands that are playing and we hadn't seen them in years and years. And I, I don't know, I think it's gonna be fun. Oh, for, for certain. That's what Josh was saying too. It's going to be like, and probably people that you may never have seen again. If something like that, like other people, you know, in bands, you know, decades ago that like, if something like this didn't happen, most likely, yeah. you know, odds are you wouldn't have. Yeah. So it's just, it's just cool. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. And so your latest album trophies has, is um, streaming. Yeah, everywhere. That's- yeah, that's streaming everywhere, and you can still purchase that on vinyl and CD. And actually, we uh, we're writing for a new album. We uh, I was just in awesome. Atlanta two weeks ago, so we've got twelve new songs we're working on. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll we'll be like the Rolling Stones. We'll exactly. Season like, seventies. We're gonna do the AARP. Yeah, you know, just bring your life alert. Your- <laughs> um. Well, Chris, thank you so much. Oh, this is awesome. This is great. Thanks for having me. Just what you were told Oh my But I made you Easy to be home Easy to let go Just what you will talk about.